open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 3 through 12 of Colossians 1. Let's go ahead and read that by way of introduction this morning. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard it, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Let's pray. Father, we come prayerfully before you with a humility, with a desperate need to hear from you. We pray that our hearts would be softened to your word, Lord, that your word would stand in judgment over us, that we wouldn't stand in judgment over it. Lord, I hope this, our hope this morning is that as we examine your word, that we would understand it correctly. You would enlighten our minds, that your spirit would bring conviction, encouragement, and clarity where it's needed in our thinking. Lord, we pray that During this time of preaching, you would draw men to your son, to their only hope. For those who are believers, we pray that you would draw your sheep close, Lord, that they would hear your voice in the preaching of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In this passage we find the thanksgiving section of Paul's letter to the church in Colossae. We also find his prayer for the spiritual growth and maturity of the church. There really is a significant amount of thematic overlap between what we see in the thanksgiving section in verses 3 through 8 and what we find in Paul's prayer in verses 9 through 12. It's really helpful to view the Thanksgiving section not only as looking forward to what Paul is going to be talking about in the letter, but it's also helpful to view the Thanksgiving section as Paul's thankfulness for what the Lord had already accomplished within the lives of the believers in Colossae. And then to look at Paul's prayer in verses 9 through 12 for his hope and expectation of their continued growth in the future. 
The Lord was sanctifying the church, and it brought joy to the apostles' heart. As we saw last week, Paul had never personally visited the church at Colossae. So the report of their spiritual growth apparently would have come from Epaphras, who was seeking Paul's aid to address false teaching within the church. Then after he gives thanks, again, much of 9 through 12 is simply a repetition in a deeper way of what we find in 3 through 8. When examining our lives in faith, it is good that we look back and see the way that the Lord has used us in the past. It's good that we give thanks for the growth that we see within our body. We should rejoice in past growth and fruitfulness individually and as a church. However, we must keep our eyes on Christ today so that we continue to walk in humility before him. Yesterday's victories do not excuse or diminish today's failures. The Lord is calling us today to walk in communion with him as we lay our lives down at his feet. Our first point this morning is found in verses 3 through 5, Paul's thankfulness for their faith, love, and hope. If you recall in verse 1, it says that Paul and Timothy are writing together, or Paul is writing, Timothy, his brother, is with him. It says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. It is evident in Paul's letters that he prays regularly. There is no doubt that the effectiveness of Paul's ministry, as well as the godliness and the holiness that was produced in his life, was greatly impacted by his prayer life. He lived in constant dependence upon God and his grace in Christ. Paul had such great love for these Christians who he had never met. This love for the believers in Colossae was really born out of a love for Christ. Paul desired to see Christ magnified through the preaching of his word and through true conversion and through this life transformation. He wanted to see Christ lifted high, not just in his life, but in the entire world and specifically within this church. We can often find it difficult. I know I can often find it difficult to pray for others because I'm battling with my own sin. I'm struggling with my own foolishness. My own insufficiency is always before me. We have various trials. We have pressing needs and responsibilities, whether that's in the home, the workplace, in our marriage, whatever the Lord has for you. We have all of these things before us. While it's right that we pray for ourselves, I think some of the sweetest and most beneficial times of prayer actually come when we're interceding for someone else. Think about the unity that is born out of constantly praying for another brother or sister. It's almost impossible to hold a grudge against one that you are constantly interceding for. It's also really difficult to not battle sin in your own life when you're praying that your brother or sister would grow in holiness. So I want to challenge us this morning that while we should pray for ourselves and for our own growth, really this is a prayer for others. And so as we come to God's word, we need to be stirred and think, do I have a heart for Christ's church as reflected in my prayers? Paul's thankfulness was directed to God the Father because God was the one who was responsible for the faith and maturity of the church. 
The gospel that they had received had originated in the mind of God. It was not their gospel message. It wasn't their plan of redemption. He is the one who is responsible for sending Christ to live the perfect life that they needed. He was the one responsible for sending Christ to die as the sacrifice for their sins. Not only had God provided the way of salvation, he also ensured that all his lost sheep would most assuredly come to him through his spirit powerfully drawing them as Christ was put on display. He receives all the glory and all the credit for our salvation. The very faith we exercise is a gift from his hand. Additionally, God is responsible for the growth for the sanctification, for the maturity of the believers. Philippians 2.13 tells us, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God gives both the desire and the ability to bear fruit pleasing to him. Therefore, it's right that Paul gives thanks to God the Father because he deserves all the glory and receives all the credit for the growth that had been accomplished. Paul identifies God as the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He wastes no time in looking at this unique status that Jesus possesses. Remember, he's trying to draw the church's attention back to the person of Christ. He is the only begotten Son of the Father. He is begotten, not made. There was never a point in which Jesus Christ was not the eternal Son of God. Yes, there was a time that he took upon flesh, he took upon this human nature, becomes Jesus, but he is an eternal Son, has an eternal status. It is true that we can become sons and daughters by adoption, but he is the eternal Son. The false teachers were minimizing the significance of Jesus' unique status Indirectly, by trying to add to what he had already done, by seeking to add man-made regulations. Paul combats this error by continually pointing the church to the preeminence of Christ in all things. While we don't have all the details regarding the problem, we certainly see that the solution is Jesus. Paul gives us specific reasons for his thankfulness, namely the faith And love that they possess, which springs from the hope laid up for them in heaven. This is verse 4 and the first half of verse 5. Again, Paul had received this testimony of their faith from Epaphras. And he says that their faith was in Christ Jesus. He was the object of their faith. I think it's helpful for us to understand what is biblical faith the reformers really identified three elements of faith, and they were identified by these Latin terms, notitia, ascensus, and fiducia. So don't be intimidated by that. Notitia just refers to the content of biblical faith. There are certain truths that a person must know in order to be saved. They must know that they're a sinner. They must know that God exists. They must know that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. They must know that He died as a substitute for their sin, bearing the wrath of God, providing atonement for sin, and resurrecting from the grave. These are essential elements to the gospel truth that a person must know. Next, a census. This is an agreement that the content of the biblical gospel 
is true. So it's not enough just to know the information about Jesus. You also have to agree that it's true. This doesn't mean that biblical faith isn't mixed with any doubt. In some sense, I think all of us can struggle with doubt at different times, but it does mean that a biblical faith has a certainty that the gospel message in Christ Jesus is, in fact, true. However, there's a third element to biblical faith, and it's called fiducia. This is a loving, confident hope and trust in Christ alone for salvation. The demons have an accurate understanding of who Jesus is. You see it all throughout the Gospels. They're begging for mercy, fleeing from his sight, terrified. They know who he is, in many ways, probably better than most of us do. They believe what he accomplished. They understand the reality that what Jesus said was true. But they had no love for Christ. They were devoid of a hope and expectation of their deliverance from their rebellion to God. The believer doesn't simply assent to the truth claims of Scripture. We are called to build our lives upon Christ. True saving faith lives by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. I've heard it said this way. Biblical faith isn't simply believing in God, it is believing God. Paul was thankful that the Colossian believers were believing God, were walking in obedience, were having their lives rooted and built up in Him. This is what God has called us to this morning, to a true, genuine faith in Christ. Paul was also thankful for their indiscriminate love for all the saints. A heart that has received the love of Christ overflows in love for others. How could we have received such great love and yet be so hard-hearted towards others? Their faith in Christ manifested itself in love to all the saints. That's significant. We're going to talk about it really just in the context of the church here, the local church, but this love actually extends to all believers. Biblical love looks out for the best interests of others. Biblical love means to prefer one's desires above our own. Ultimately, a true biblical love points others to Christ. The love that they possessed was expressed to all the saints. It wasn't confined to a select few that they enjoyed fellowshipping with. It wasn't just for those who agreed with every point of their theology. It wasn't for those who just shared the same personalities or the same preferences or the same convictions that they had about what we should be about in the Christian life. It was for all those whom Christ had called to himself. How are we doing this morning in loving all the saints? Do we pray for one another? Do we share meals together? Do we encourage one another to pursue holiness in Christ? Do we strive to meet the needs of those in the body? These are tangible expressions of love for God's church. The faith in the Lord Jesus and the love for the saints, according to verse 5, was because of the hope laid up for them in heaven. 
I wouldn't normally think of like, why is my love deficient? Why is my faith weak? Well, our love is deficient for the saints, Paul says, because we don't understand the hope laid up for us in heaven. You see, a weak faith and a lack of love are really symptoms to not understanding the hope of the gospel in Christ. They were living with a vibrant faith and a tangible hope, I'm sorry, a tangible love because they possessed an understanding of the hope laid up for them in heaven. When our hearts and minds are focused on the hope of the gospel, it will be evidenced in our faith and love. So what is the believer's hope? Well, it's the forgiveness of sins, the removal of God's wrath. It is this hope that we will see Christ face to face. And we will worship with all the angels and all the saints who have gone before, all those who have laid everything down. And we will cry out, holy is the Lord to receive glory and honor and power. This is the hope that God will crush all his enemies under his feet. And yet we will sit with the ransomed church of God in awe of the greatness of who he is. It includes putting off this corruptible body, this broken body, and receiving a new glorified body that will be able to see him as he is, free from any sin, any brokenness, or any imperfection. It includes being in his presence without distraction, without commitments that are never followed through on. It includes enjoying Christ forever. This is our hope. If you're struggling in your faith this morning, if you're lacking love, look at the hope of the gospel in Jesus Christ. When our eyes are looking to the hope laid up for us in heaven, it will increase our faith. It will strengthen our faith. It will cause us to love others. Of this hope, Paul says at the end of verse 5, they had heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. These believers had already been acquainted with the gospel message because it was delivered to them by Epaphras. Paul is reminding the church that the gospel that had come to them was in fact reliable and true. This is really one way Paul was seeking to instill confidence within the church of their leader Epaphras in the midst of the false teaching. The truth of the gospel is unchanging. We do not have liberty to bring new or innovative ideas to the eternal truth of God's word. It has always been, and the gospel will always be, about Jesus' perfect life, his substitutionary death, and his victorious resurrection. The gospel will never change. We live in a world that is constantly changing. There are constant pressures, constant reinterpretations. What we need is the eternal truth of God's word, not the spirit of our age today. The gospel that you have received in the New Testament is God's unchanging truth. One ministry of the Spirit is to remind us of this gospel message. He confirms the truth that was already delivered to the saints by bringing illumination to the truths 
to the testimony of Scripture. The Spirit isn't teaching us new information. He's reminding us of the old eternal truths that were handed down. Calvin says, It is therefore not the role of the Holy Spirit, such as he, as he has promised to us, to dream up fresh and original revelations, or to fashion a new kind of teaching which alienates us from the gospel message which we have received. His role is rather to seal and confirm in our hearts the teaching provided for us in the gospel. Brothers and sisters, we must constantly be immersing ourselves in and acquainting ourselves with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a stumbling block to the Jews and it is foolishness to the Greeks, but to those who are being saved, it is the wisdom and power of God. Next, we'll see gospel expansion in verses 6 through 8. In verse 6, it says, Which has come to you, this word of the truth, this hope of the gospel has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it. The same gospel that they had received is the same gospel that is going out into the world. It was bearing fruit and increasing in both spheres. Paul gives two reasons for the Colossians to have confidence in the gospel message that they've received. First, he says in verse 6, that it has gone out into the whole world. It's come to them and it's gone out to the whole world. The localized message of the false teachers had not spread throughout the entire Roman world. The gospel was expanding so rapidly that Paul uses the hyperbole of it actually reaching the entire world. Douglas Moo says the widespread experience of the gospel is testimony to its truthfulness over against the false teachers who were propagating a local heresy. One great benefit that we have in the church today, there's really an embarrassment of riches of all of the pastors, teachers, theologians who have gone before and have understood the gospel, have spread this gospel message, while the church has battled and will continue to battle with all sorts of false teaching, it is strengthening to our faith to go back and read people from centuries prior who are preaching the same Christ crucified, the same solution to sin, the same plight of man, the same hope laid up for them in heaven. When you read stuff from hundreds, thousands of years ago about this gospel message that is still true today, it brings strength to our hearts and confidence to our minds. Second, the gospel, the result of gospel preaching is gospel fruit. The Spirit of God who applies this message of the gospel is the same Spirit that produces fruit in our lives as we abide in Christ. Therefore, biblical conversion will always, present, uh, will always result in gospel fruit. The same spirit that applies the gospel is the same spirit that produces the fruit. So if the spirit has regenerated our hearts, then we should expect, we must expect, there will be gospel fruit associated with it. 
Paul says that the gospel is bearing fruit and increasing in the world. There is a striking similarity between Paul's language here and that of the creation mandate given by God in Genesis 1, verse 28. It says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Paul seems to be drawing a parallel between the original creation mandate that God gave to Adam and Eve in the garden to do what? Be fruitful and multiply. Well, what is it that the gospel is doing in the entire world? It is being fruitful and it is multiplying. It is as if Paul is saying God is establishing his new creation covenant community and this gospel message will not be silenced. It will be victorious. And God's rule and dominion will extend over the hearts of his men as he establishes his kingdom on this earth. And when Jesus says, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, this will happen. God's gospel will multiply. It will bear fruit. As a church body, we should ask ourselves, is the gospel increasing and multiplying, bearing fruit in our community? Do we, see the God, do we share the gospel with boldness and expectation to those around us. We should have a confidence that God's gospel, that the gospel of Jesus Christ will bear fruit and multiply as it is communicated in the most hostile of circumstances. The Lord will draw men to himself as Christ is lifted high. The Colossians, Paul says, have also experienced the gospel fruit in their lives from the day they heard the message and understood God's grace and truth. Well, that's convicting to me a little bit, right? From the day they've heard it. From the day they heard the gospel message and understood God's grace in truth, something happened. Their hearts and their minds were transformed. Paul encourages them to look at the fruit of the gospel that has already been produced among them. Their past fruitfulness, their past growth, gives testimony to the power of the message. The false teaching did not produce biblical gospel fruit. It produced man-made regulations such as do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which have an appearance of godliness, have an appearance of wisdom, as Paul says at the end of chapter 2, but they are powerless. To bring change. External regulations do not bring internal transformation. The message of the gospel had brought fruit in their lives, and they were to look back to that, to recall that. Fruit was produced immediately upon reception and an accurate understanding of God's grace. I mean, I, I love that. You, you can, there can be a confusion today, and not just today, but really throughout the church, of what God's grace really means for the believer. It does not lead to licentiousness. It doesn't lead to this attitude of, who cares if I sin? God's just going to forgive me. When they understood God's grace accurately, when you understand God's grace accurately, 
truthfully, correctly. It empowers you to kill the sin that you once loved and to love the God that you once hated. An accurate understanding of the grace of God leads to fruitful, holy living. The person who says it's no big deal if I sin because God will forgive me in his grace is misunderstanding grace. Does God forgive sin? Yes. Otherwise, we would all be in desperate trouble. But God's grace does more than provide forgiveness. It brings transformation. That's what we should desire as a church body and encourage one another to. How could we continue to sin against such a gracious and loving God who has called us from the kingdom of darkness, from the power of Satan into his glorious light? And what foolishness is it for the believer to say, no, I'll take the darkness. He's freed us from bondage to live in his freedom, but we'll take the bondage. That's not understanding the grace of God accurately. He is enabling us to grow in holiness. Why? So that we can draw close to his presence, to enjoy him forever. God's grace is magnified as he transforms the church to those who once loved the fleeting pleasures of sin that would rather suffer the ills of Egypt and be with Christ. The Colossians had received the gospel message from Epaphras, who was a fellow servant of Christ on their behalf. And he had made known their love in the spirit, it says in verses 7 and 8. Epaphras was a fellow servant of Christ. I think it's significant, maybe not in our circles, but he doesn't say that he is an apostle, right? The apostleship, if you remember last week, was reserved for those who had visibly and personally walked with the Lord. So while Epaphras still had some, uh, while he was still a, a faithful and trusted minister of the gospel, he was not an apostle. Yet Paul is wanting the church to have confidence in the pastor God had given to them. The false teachers were seeking to undermine the message that he was preaching, thereby discrediting him. And how easy would it have been for Paul to say, guys, anytime you have questions, just come to me. But he doesn't do that. He builds up this, this pastor, this one who had received this grace from God and was faithfully preaching it. And he is saying, this man is a faithful servant of Christ. And he was also a faithful representative of the church. The ESV which is the translation I'm using, it says he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. Some of your translations might actually say he's a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf. It actually seems better in the context that it's he's on behalf of Paul and then he is representing them, making known their love in the Spirit. Either way, it's very clear that the ministry that Epaphras had was endorsed by the Apostle Paul because it was faithful to the message of Christ. Epaphras' faithfulness to report their love produced by the Spirit, I think, is all the more astonishing given the current context. Right? Epaphras had left the church to enlist Paul's aid. There's probably more than two, but at least two reasons came to my mind is why would he need to do that? Why would he need to leave the church to enlist Paul's aid? Well, first, he may have felt that he was inadequate, unable to respond to the claims of the false teachers. If that were the case, what 
humility that he has to praise the love and the spirit of this church when he's saying, hey, I'm inadequate to even address this situation, yet God is still at work. Or we could also think maybe it's possible that there were some within the congregation who were actually being influenced by the false teachers. They weren't listening to the message that he was faithfully preaching. So he was sufficiently dealing with the error, but the church was not sufficiently listening to the message. And yet, here he is praising their love in the Spirit. What a humble man God had given to his church. Paul's recognition of Epaphras' faithful service to Christ should have led the church to thank the Lord for this man. I can't help but think of even where we are as a church where the Lord has entrusted faithful men to pastor our church at Southern Hills. They seek to put Christ on display each week through the worship service, through counseling and in their daily lives, while I'm sure that all of them would admit that they don't do this perfectly, that I do believe they do it faithfully. We have reason this morning to give thanks because there are a lot of churches across our county, our state, in the world that are no longer contending for the age-old gospel message. We must pray for and build up our leaders, not because they're perfect, but because the Lord really uses weak and broken vessels. Paul has just concluded his examination of how the gospel has been bearing fruit and increasing in the world. Now his prayer is going to turn to how the gospel should be bearing fruit and increasing in their lives. I love this shift here, so it's not enough to see the external expansion of God's word. We want to see that, but we also want an internal expansion of God's rule and authority. In verses 9 through 12, we see a prayer to walk worthy. Paul again emphasizes in verse 9, in verse 9 from the day we heard it, we have not ceased to pray for you. He emphasizes that he is continually praying for this congregation. He was faithfully interceding on their behalf since the day he had heard the report of their faith, love, and hope. As we said earlier, many of the elements that Paul prays are simply repeated ideas from verses 3 through 8. The Lord was already at work in the congregation. They were already on the right path. Now the call was to bear more fruit, to be more faithful, to continue serving Christ as you already have done in the past. We ought to faithfully pray for one another. If we are not interceding for one another, and my heart needs this, if I am not interceding for one another, I am not drawing near to the heart of Christ. Church, even here this morning, he is ever living to make intercession for his church. He is always interceding for his bride that he might present her blameless and holy, fully mature and ready for his coming. Christ constantly intercedes for his people because his people constantly need it. We constantly need the Lord Jesus to intercede for us because we're constantly battling the world, the flesh, and the devil. Church, where your intercessions and my intercessions and even Paul's intercessions will fall short both in quality and quantity, the Lord Jesus's won't. 
he will always live to intercede for his bride. He prays in verse 9 that the Colossian believers would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Douglas Moo says, What Paul has in mind is not some particular special direction for one's life, but a deep and abiding understanding of the revelation of Christ and all that he means for the universe and the Colossians. So he's not praying for some discernment about what does God want me to do. He is praying that they would understand the will of God as revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ and how that has significance on their lives and on the entire world, that they would have a knowledge of God's will. Notice that being filled with the knowledge of God's will is in the passive. This means that an accurate knowledge of the mystery of God in Christ requires that God enlightens our mind to understand and receive this truth. Sin has impacted our mind in such a way that without the Spirit's illumination, we cannot receive spiritual things. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians. So while we're studying, he's actually the one who is filling us with the knowledge of the mystery of Christ. We see that God has revealed his will in the law. His moral will is revealed in the law. The law is an expression of his nature and his character. We ultimately see the moral law of God embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the perfect reflection of God's will. This is why in Isaiah 53.10 it says, The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So if you want to know what the Lord's will is for your life, look at Jesus. Look at him because he is the perfect reflection of God's moral law, which is the reflection of his will. Christians should also be rooted in a thorough knowledge of God's word. If we are not growing in knowledge, it will hinder our spiritual growth. We should not de-emphasize the importance of God's word. John 1 tells us that Jesus is the word made flesh. So the more that we understand God's revealed word as he has given us, as we preach week after week, the more we will understand the one to whom all of his word attests. Jesus Christ. So when you're reading God's word, it should be pointing us to a person because he is the word of God made flesh. So ultimately, understanding God's will, growing in our knowledge of God's will, is growing in our knowledge of Jesus because he is the expression of his will and he is the end of his word. Additionally, he wants this knowledge to be accompanied with spiritual wisdom and understanding at the end of verse 9. He wants the church to move beyond just an accurate knowledge of God's will in Christ to being able to discern and apply it. All three of these are essential to our spiritual maturity. We must move beyond simply knowing what God's word says to understanding what it means and then accurately and faithfully applying it to our lives. We all know this if you think of a young child. Suppose you're telling a child not to shove a fork in the electrical outlet. 
So in order for a child to obey that command or for that command to be beneficial to the child, they would have to understand what a fork is. They would also have to understand what an electrical outlet is, how to identify it, and they would also have to have a concept of what it means to shove something in something else, right? You follow? So there has to be a knowledge, and then there has to be an understanding of what those words, what those phrases mean, and then there has to be an application of that. Otherwise, it's no benefit. If the child doesn't apply the fork in their hand, not shoving the fork in their hand into the electrical outlet that's near them, the result would be shocking. Okay, that's all I've got. Uh, that's all I've got. Sorry. But we all understand this, right? We understand that in order for us to be mature men and women, brothers and sisters in Christ, we have to know, we have to understand, and we have to apply. I want to say this. That doesn't mean diminish knowledge in the Christian life. That's not the answer. Grow in knowledge. Grow in understanding. But have just as much passion to, to discern it and to apply it. Have just as much passion to see it come to life in your conduct as you do in discovering it. Recall the context of the letter. False teachers were seeking to undermine the message of the gospel by offering a more complete Christian experience. These believers needed to have the ability to pinpoint and expose the error while clinging to Christ. It isn't proper for the church to be ignorant of God's will. For the church collectively, for us as individual believers, it is not fitting or proper for us to be ignorant of God's revealed word. Not all believers will have the same level of gifting and discernment in these areas, but we are all called to grow in maturity. The purpose of their growth in knowledge, wisdom, and understanding is found in verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. One commentator says, Paul indicates that the Colossians' mental and attitudinal realignment is to produce behavioral transformation. Paul then identifies four ways through the rest of these next couple of verses. There's four ways in which the believer will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord and fully pleasing to him. Number one, bear fruit in every good work. Number two, increase in the knowledge of God. Number three, be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Number four, give thanks to the Father with all joy. So these are the ways to please the Father. Bear fruit, increase in your knowledge of God, be strengthened with all power according to his might, and give thanks to God with joy. First, we're called to bear fruit in every good work. As we saw last week, we bear fruit by abiding in the Lord Jesus Christ through faith-filled communion with him. All believers are to produce all types of fruit. That seems really simple, but that is really, really difficult. 
Because some of us can maybe have more of a natural inclination to be patient, for example. And so it might be easy for someone to look on and say, I can really see the fruit of the Spirit in your life as you're exercising patience in this situation. And yet that same person might struggle with a lack of self-control, and so they constantly overeat. Well, we don't look and say, yeah, but I'm being patient. Therefore, I'm excused from all the other things that God has called me to because he wants them to bear fruit in every good work. You see, holiness is a universal principle. Not only is it universal in the sense of God is calling all of us to it, he is calling our entire lives, our entire thoughts, everything about us to be holy. Holiness is holistic. It should reach every area of our hearts. We cannot turn a blind eye because we're called to bear fruit in every good work. Are we satisfied with the sparse production of fruit when the Lord is calling us to abound in good works? While good works do not add to our justification, they naturally flow out of the heart that is justified in communing with the Lord. The Lord did not save us to make us better versions of ourselves. He saved us to transform us into the likeness of Jesus. So if you're satisfied with where you're at this morning, thank God that he's grown you and matured you, but keep battling. Keep pressing on because we want fruit in every area. Second, Paul prays that the church would increase in the knowledge of God. Scripture teaches that God is inexhaustible so that we can never have a comprehensive knowledge of God. However, this should not deter us from making it our aim to always be increasing in our knowledge of God. Our knowledge of God or lack thereof is directly reflected in our living. A.W. Tozer says it this way, I believe there is scarcely an error in doctrine or a failure in applying Christian ethics that cannot be traced finally to imperfect and ignoble thoughts about God. Every error we have in doctrine and every blunder we have morally is because of a lack of understanding of who God is. If we think little of God or think of God little, either one, then whatever we are setting our minds on, that will begin to shape us and we will begin to idolize that thing instead of God. This really challenged me. I, I think... How much have I learned of God's nature in the last year? How much in the last year? How much time? When was the last time that you've studied God's attributes? When was the last time that you set aside all the other stuff that we would call practical theology and just looked at God, his nature, his being, his person, his existence? And as you looked at him, you became increasingly small. This has challenged me to think I need to get to the basics of the Christian life, which is growing in my knowledge and understanding of who God is. Third, they're to be strengthened with all power according to God's glorious might. If you're not feeling overwhelmed this morning, I'm, maybe I'm not doing a very good job, but it is no small task to bear fruit in every good work, to always be increasing in the knowledge of God. Peter O'Brien says the standards set before the Colossians were far higher than those set by the false teachers. Nothing short of God's almighty power at work within them 
would enable them to live so as to please him in everything. We're so prone to man-made regulations, to this type of heresy, to these do not touch, do not taste, because we can do that. But to bear fruit, to leave no stone unturned in your heart, to set all of your mind and passion on the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm in trouble. This is why we have this third thing. Be strengthened because the Christian life is not lived according to your might. It's according to his glorious power. The world, the flesh, and the devil are constantly opposing every spirit-wrought desire for good. I cannot tell you how many times I've come under conviction by hearing the preaching of the word or having a conversation with a brother or sister in Christ or uh, some other means that the Lord has used to stir my heart in literally days, hours, maybe minutes later, my heart is again so cold, so unmoved, and so stuck in whatever it is that I'm looking to. We can make more commitments, we can make more resolutions, but what we need is the power of God to enable us to walk in holiness before him. Our only hope is to be strengthened according to his infinite might. God provides us the strength to do what he commands. The same spirit who strengthens us, who indwells us, is the same spirit who resurrected Christ from the dead. Paul says God will strengthen them for all endurance and patience. Endurance refers to difficult circumstances. Endurance refers to being able to walk faithfully and bear up under the trials of life. There's strength from God for that, for his people. Patience refers to being able to endure difficult relationships. Some of the greatest trials in life can come through tumultuous relationships, whether that's in the home, in the workplace, or within the church. We can look to God with confident expectation that he will give us the strength to be more than conquerors. Whether it's an impossible circumstance or a difficult relationship, he provides us the strength to do what he has commanded us to do. Fourth, Paul desires that they would give thanks with joy. It's a little confusing if you look at, uh, at the end of verse 11. It, it, it's attaching joy to the endurance and patience. It seems to me it's better to actually attach the thankfulness with the joy. But again, either way, it's clear, give thanks to God. This should be the regular practice of the Christian because all good things have been bestowed upon us by grace. The Son of God, God's favor, God's blessings, our salvation are all given despite what we have earned, not because of it. God's qualifying of these believers to share in the inheritance of the saints is a reminder needed in the context of the false teaching. As we mentioned last week, and we're going to see in the coming weeks, they were promoting this self-made religion, these man-made regulations that had an appearance of wisdom but was devoid of God's power. Paul is reminding the church that they live in grace. It is God who qualifies them. They are not qualifying themselves. Well, that is a reason for thanks this morning. 
God has made us fit to receive an eternal inheritance in his son. It is God who justifies, who can condemn. This prayer reflects a high calling upon the Colossian saints. Lest we leave here this morning forgetting that Jesus has already accomplished all of this stuff for us. Think about it. He bore every fruit pleasing to God. He had a perfect knowledge of the Father. He constantly relied on the Spirit's strength to accomplish the mission that God had given to him. And he overflowed with thanks for the bride that was purchased by his blood. While we are to strive to grow in grace and be sanctified in these areas, do not take your eyes off the one who did this for you. He is your hope. He is your confidence. He is your strength. He is everything to us and for us. In conclusion, I'm sure there's some here this morning who have never exercised faith. God is commanding you, not asking. He is commanding you to repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, crucified, dead, and resurrected, reigning today. Your sins separate you from the Lord of heaven and earth, and the day of judgment is coming. Your only hope is to be found in Christ, washed in his blood, having his righteousness imputed to you. His grace is sufficient to save this morning. Second, are we actively spreading the message of the gospel, looking for it to bear fruit and to increase in our families, in our workplace, and in our community. My heart can grow so cold and so indifferent to the needs of others. May God ignite a flame in our hearts that desires to see what Paul was talking about here in Colossians 1, this gospel message bearing fruit in the lives of those around the church. There is work to do, brothers and sisters. Third, is the gospel bearing fruit and increasing in your own heart? Are the fruits of the Spirit being produced as you commune with Christ? Are you increasing in the knowledge of God, His ways, and His word? Are you looking to God to provide the strength that you need to live the Christian life? Are you giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light? Let's pray. Father, the calling that you have placed upon us is not one that's difficult. It is one that is impossible. Lord, in our own strength, we would be doomed to fail. But we thank you this morning that you have provided one, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has perfectly fulfilled everything that you have called us to do. Lord, we thank you that through faith and the merit of Christ, we can be qualified or made fit to receive an eternal inheritance. Lord, I pray that you would increase our thankfulness, increase our faith. Lord, I pray that we would respond to your word this morning with the expectation that where we have failed in the past, Christ, through his power, can succeed 
in us as we look to him. We pray this in his name. Amen.